Hi, my name is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. Before we start with the podcast, I have a few things that I'd like to mention. The first is that we've set up a special email address where listeners of our podcast can send in questions related to Agile, Agile transformation, basically anything about Agile at all. Just send your question to soundnotes at leadingagile.com. You can send it in text form, you can send a WAV file or any kind of audio recording of yourself asking the question, even video would be okay. What we're going to do is take the questions that we get, and in a future podcast, I will be joined by a few of our enterprise transformation consultants. We'll talk about your question. We'll talk about some possible solutions, some ideas, some things you might try when you get back to work, so that if you've got something that's going well, you can make it go better. And if you've got something that's not going well, we'll give you some suggestions or strategies for things you might try to change to make it go a little more smoothly. So again, any question about Agile or Agile transformation, just send it to soundnotes at leadingagile.com. You can send it as text, you can send it as an audio file, or you can send video, whatever's easier for you. We just like to get a lot of questions from our listeners so we can start to incorporate that into the podcast that we've been doing. Again, soundnotes at leadingagile.com. The second thing I want to mention is we've set up a special discount code for podcast listeners who are interested in taking one of our CSM or CSPO classes. You can find a list of all our upcoming classes by going to leadingagile.com training. We're currently doing classes in Atlanta, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., and San Jose. So just go to leadingagile.com training, find a class you'd like to take, and enter the discount code SOUNDNOTES to receive 10% off the list price. Now, onto the podcast. Hi, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. Today, I've got Dan Greening, who I'm very psyched that Dan has joined the company. So Dan's pretty new to Leading Agile, but he's been around for a long time, and I've had a, the opportunity to interview Dan on a number of different occasions in the past. He's done a lot of great work in the space of Agile, and a lot, uh, especially with Enterprise Agile. He works with Jeff Sutherland quite a bit. Um, so Dan, welcome to the company, and thank you for taking time out of your Saturday morning. Hey, thanks a lot. So, Dan, before we get into the thing, the main topic that we're going to talk about, could you give a little bit of background um, on yourself for the folks who may not be familiar with you yet? Sure. Uh, so, let's see. I am a, a researcher by training. I have a PhD in computer science. I spent some time at IBM Research, and I did some chaos theory-related parallel processing weirdness over there. And when I was there, I, I decided... To, that I wasn't really contributing to society in a way that uh, made me happy. And I realized that what I really wanted to do was to start up companies and contribute actual value that I could see whether people were using it or not and uh, enjoying the fruits of that labor. And so I joined a succession of startups and, and started a couple myself. Uh, and then I joined a company called Citrix Online as a director of uh, engineering. And in that situation, one of my team members said, we should use Agile. And I said, what's that? So that was back in 2007. And that started my journey about using Agile to uh, help more effectively manage teams. So bringing us back to today, I'm now an Agile coach. Uh, I'm a certified enterprise coach with the Scrum Alliance, and I also uh, am head of a, uh, an, a an academic track at a big conference on system science that focuses on Agile. So uh, that's me. Cool. Yes. All right. Thank you. And so what we're going to talk about this morning, um, 
are these these five things that you've seen across different forms of agile that are so critical to making it work? Sure. So I spent some time looking at most of the agile methodologies or things that we inherently think of as agile, and they include things that are far away from agile in a doctrinaire sense, like lean startup or Pomodoro. Uh, or, or getting things done, but the hardcore things are there too. Scrum, XP, uh, Lean Kanban, and even Lean Manufacturing. And look at what are the concepts that are present in all of these methodologies that really give Agile its value. And I came up with five things that are characteristic of uh, sustainable agility, three of them are things you pretty much have to have to have agility. And you can use any of these methodologies, and as long as you're adhering to all three patterns, you'll get an agile team, an agile organization, or even an agile person. You can think of these things as highly scalable. I'm very interested in scalability. It was actually the topic of my PhD dissertation. So the the scale of, so let's let's talk about what these patterns are and we can talk a little bit about how they scale. So uh, the first pattern of an agile entity is that it has to measure economic progress. And those uh, in in the business world we call those leading indicators, things that tell us very early on whether we are achieving our economic goals. And economies don't have to be just, uh, you know, dollar-based economy. In the Scrum team, we actually do have an economy. It is uh, an economy of something where you're managing a limited set of resources to achieve a higher goal. So we're trying to leverage, uh, you know, five people on a Scrum team to deliver more functionality. So uh, that's our economy. And, uh, and, and so in this economy, we're measuring leading, we're measuring our economic progress. So we want to know, is the team able to deliver higher velocity, higher quality, greater internal happiness, uh, sprint after sprint using the limited resources it has? Okay. Okay. All right. So, uh, the, Lean startup is the converse of that with respect to value. So now uh, someone who's practicing lean startup methodologies, they don't have a scrum team. They don't have really much going on in terms of uh, execution. But what they do have is the ability to touch the market. So they are also measuring leading indicators to economy. They want to know... What is the reach of our product? How many people is it actually touching? They want to know what's the engagement of the people with those products, like how often do they use them? They want to measure the monetization of the product, like how much are people actually paying them to use this product or to buy this product. So uh, they, they need to measure leading indicators because they need to know whether they're actually hitting a market that, really is going to deliver value or not, right? So at a minimum, you, if you are not measuring stuff, 
So, you know, sometimes we talk about no-estimates people and that sort of thing. They, they can measure, those no-estimates people can measure some stuff in a limited way. They can measure the number of backlog items that they get through in a sprint or something like that. But in actuality, they're really, uh, in my opinion, they're degrading their ability to be agile by shunning important metrics that are relevant to, okay. to their productivity. So, uh, so measurement is super important, and it's a basis for all the other patterns in, in the, these agile-based patterns. The, uh, the second pattern is uh, proactively experiment for improvement. So in this pattern, this happens in a retrospective where we gather our leading indicators. So that would be velocity, quality, and happiness for a scrum team. And then we try to figure out if there's something that we can say about the, the, the work that we did before and the metrics that we actually got. And if we can conclude some things like, you know, when we did this thing, our velocity went up and our quality went up and our happiness stayed the same, you might say, well, that was a good thing to do. Maybe we should do more of that. So you proactively experiment by taking that knowledge from the past and apply it to the coming sprint. You increase whatever it is you did. Um, or you may hypothesize some things that you haven't tried before that you see in the press. So, for example, we have a paper recently published that shows that pair programming improves the quality and uh, significantly, uh, and it actually improves the speed that teams operate. So, having that knowledge from outside, the team might say, well, I wonder if it would work for us. It might not work for us, but it might. Let's try it. So, they proactively experiment by constructing uh, uh, some rules for how they're going to operate in their sprint retrospective, and then they start their sprint retrospective, and away they go, and then they're able to test at least a little bit whether that theory is true for them. So then the third, and this is where you get agility for real. If you do the first three patterns, you are agile uh, enough, and that is limiting work in process. So this is a lean concept that is carried through to the Agile world. Uh, the idea is that we, we want to avoid uh, gathering inventory of code before it's shipped to a customer. So if we have waterfall, that is a very not limiting work and process very much. You might have an 18-month or 24-month software project all the code that you're accumulating during that time that has never touched a customer is really work in process. We can't really tell if the customer will value it because they never actually got it. So uh, hang it's on for one second. Code. I want to I yeah. interrupt for one second because you're talking about work in process in a slightly different level than some folks may understand it. You're not yeah. talking about work in process in terms of I'm not going to multitask. You're talking about work in process maybe more in a lean startup -y kind of way where it's, I'm not going to have a bunch of accumulated stuff that I haven't validated with a customer. Right? Right. Right. Okay. Actually, this concept is pervasive <clears throat> in all of the agile methodologies and it, it applies to a million different things. So that's one, 
factor that you you actually want to deliver value. This is Scrum, right? Like that's Scrum tells us that we want to create a shippable product and ideally and ideally a shipped product at the end of every sprint. And the reason that we do that is actually so that we can validate that we produce the functionality that the stakeholders actually want. So uh, it is, and in a way, it makes the metrics that we're using, like velocity, more rigorous. So if we're saying we can produce 20 points of functionality at the end of every sprint, if what we mean by that is that we checked it into the source code control system and we never bothered testing it, <clears throat> Yeah, that's actually, not too valuable. That, that functionality, that leading indicator that we picked is really bad. You know, it's, there's so much that still has to be done that we haven't tried yet, and we don't know if it takes a little amount of time to test that or if it takes a huge amount of time to test that. We don't know if there are any bugs. We don't know if it even satisfies the customer. And so all these elements are really gradations of, how how good is your leading indicator? So your velocity is a bad leading indicator if you never even bothered to write an automated test or if you never have someone test it. Okay. Does that make sense? Yep, yep. So, so the limit work and process idea, it comes from Toyota, and of course they were dealing with real inventory of real tires and parts and all that other stuff. And one of their, you know, revolutionary models was that they kept, tried to keep almost zero inventory in factories. So, so when someone ordered a car, you'd actually have to build the components, and they call this a pull model. Of course, you can't, that's a, you could take this to an extreme that's infeasible, and Toyota did not do that, and none of us should think about Agile as something that you take to a crazy extreme. But, uh, but you actually always want to be pushing on the organization to limit work and process to try to deliver software, for example, to customers at the end of every sprint. And some companies, of course, deliver working software at the end of every day or sometimes every hour, eight hours in the case of LinkedIn. Right. There's, there's many companies that are really embracing this idea and they get benefits from this. And the benefits are agile, right? The, the purpose of agile is to acknowledge upfront that we really don't know whether customers will want this or not. They say they will want it. We've gotten a focus group together and they said they really would want it. In actuality, once we deliver it to them, it turns out, you know, about 40 or 50% of the time, even what they said they wanted wasn't what they wanted. And, and so now that we acknowledge that this is kind of the case and there's almost no way to control that, the best way to deal with that is actually to give them a little bit of the functionality that they say they want and see if they like it. Give them a little bit more of that functionality, see if they actually use it, and do all these things. That makes us more agile. We're actually measuring something real, their actual engagement with the product, rather than something fake, which is what the user says they want. So, uh, so limiting work and process has many benefits. It, it reaches the customer faster, it also does what you suggested, David, which is um, this business about multitasking versus focused work. So when we think about a, a team, 
operating in a multitasking form, which will, and, and that means that we have five different people and each person is working on a different piece of functionality. What happens is that each of them is actually able to produce that functionality in a much longer time frame than they would be if all five of them worked on one piece of functionality together. And so we often counsel teams to try to focus more to get as many people as possible or feasible to work on a particular piece of functionality and get that frickin' piece of functionality out the door okay. uh, before the end of the sprint because if we don't do that, what ends up happening is all five people work on five different things. They get to the end of the sprint and none of them are actually done. Right. So, so what we've done is we've extended the amount of time that we, the company has between the time they think a customer wants something until the time that we validate whether they really do one. Okay. And, and so focusing helps us get uh, limited work in process and shrink that time. So, you know, these chaos, so these three patterns, measuring economic progress, uh, proactively experimenting to improve, limiting work in process, those three things give us agility and uh, they all are combating time. Okay. So people who live in the world of chaos theory, which is a little bit what this, these patterns are based on, um, know that time is the enemy. So uh, if we allow ourselves lots of time to do something, what happens is the chaotic system, in this case an economy that we're operating on, is going to diverge so much from where it currently is that it's going to be unrecognizable. Okay. And so this is the you know, phenomenon of GM and Kodak going bankrupt, you know, they, they were, they thought they were measuring economic progress because they were looking at, uh, here, let's use Kodak as an example. Kodak thought it was measuring economic progress. It saw that it still had a film business. It was still selling film, no problem. And it thought, it looked around and it said, wow, look, digital cameras, digital whatever, uh, you know, I guess that could be a threat, but look, you know, we're still getting orders. We're still getting whatever. And so those are lagging indicators, those the orders and all that stuff. And then what actually happened was suddenly the bottom fell out of the film market and, and Kodak was left holding the bag going, what? Right. Yeah. And that's because they weren't using leading indicators and they weren't limiting their work and process. They weren't doing a lot of things that we consider to be agile. They weren't experimenting with the market. They went bankrupt. Same thing happened with GM. Um, and, and, you know, uh, so, so anyway, those are three patterns and they're, it turns out, Oh, some people think that, Oh, we're a startup. We're inherently agile. Not really, right? Like, well, in a way, they might be. Let's see. So if you're in a startup, you're a dinky startup, and you have, are you measuring economic progress? Probably you are, or, or you're trying to, or you're at least running on, <laughs> you know, whatever the investors stuck in your bank account. But the, uh, the second one, are we proactively experimenting to improve? Maybe, but probably not, right? Like, 
you're able to produce functionality. I think the third thing is something that you can do in a startup. You're limiting work and process. You have such a tiny team, and you've got to get the damn thing out the door before the money runs out. And so startups have an inherent pressure to be a little bit more agile than a waterfall company because okay. they have to deal with the limits of their economy. But in fact, what I've seen through statistics studying startup companies and larger companies is that startup companies accumulate technical data at roughly the same rate that large companies do. It's just that they start out with such a little amount of debt that it's not quite so obvious, and then it just accumulates over time. So I guess that was a little bit of a distraction. So we talked about the three patterns, and those three patterns, if you do them, if, especially if you limit work and process sufficiently, you can be agile. And what I mean by that is you can actually succeed in a chaotic economy. Okay. So the economies that most businesses run in are crazy, right? Like there's competitors that emerge out of nowhere. There are market changes. There's demographic shifts. There's all, there's economic factors like, you know, a collapse of a, a recession could happen. All sorts of things happen in the real business economy that each business operates in. Some businesses operate in high-speed economies, so any startup working in social media and that sort of thing, you're starting to deal with, you're dealing with pretty high-speed changes. If you're dealing with manufacturing or mining or that sort of thing, you're still dealing with a chaotic economy, but the economy is slower. And so you don't, your agility doesn't have to be quite at the same rate if you're in mining as opposed to writing software for a social media situation. Okay. Nevertheless, they're both chaotic. And so you can and should apply these principles. It's just how much work and process are you really needing to limit yourself to in order to live in this economy. Yeah. And, I, and part of the reason I explain that is there's a cost to agility. So it costs something to be agile. Uh, the amount of regression testing that a team has to do is doing monthly sprints. Uh, if they're actually shipping to customers and they're actually doing testing, the actual amount of testing they have to do is nine times higher than the amount of regression testing that has to be done for a team running waterfall for an 18-month product cycle. Okay. And, and, and the reason for that is that you have to ship every sprint, right? So if you have to ship every sprint, you have to do some regression testing over all the functionality that you've built before. And if you put this in a graph, you'll see it's like roughly nine times as much. People don't necessarily acknowledge that. And, and that's sad because there is a cost to agility. So more agility costs even more. So if you want to do a one-month sprint, that's fine. But if you want to do a two-week sprint, now you've tried to, now you're trying to squeeze all that testing and integration and all that other stuff into two weeks, whereas before you had four weeks, and now you, that is squeezing out the amount of time that you have to do development. You can fix that, and we all do, by doing automated testing, by doing continuous integration and deployment. That's really important because we can continue to shrink our sprint cycle time at not too much cost. Okay. And yet, there is a cost to it. And I, I just want to acknowledge it because I think we 
gloss over that sometimes by customers. That, and this is the pressure that causes people to abandon Agile. Yeah. If they're pushed too hard, if they're spending too much, if their anxiety is too high, you know, they're just going to throw it out. Okay. And so, so, so now we've talked about these three patterns. If you do them, you're agile. But I've also mentioned that it's hard to maintain them. Right. And that's because it requires enormous discipline to do these things. There's a fourth pattern that we might talk about, which is collective responsibility. And Dave, this uh, relates to your accountability work. Okay. So uh, collective responsibility is something that is, is the idea that when you join a team or you join a company or you join a family, uh, if, if we have collective responsibility in our family, let's say, then people who join that group say, I agree that I will be personally responsible for the collective output of the team. Okay. Okay. And so if, if I'm a developer and I join a team and I actually think of myself as signing this contract and making this commitment that I will be personally responsible for the collective output of the team, and the team actually produces poor quality software at the end of the sprint. Right. Normally, when you don't sign that contract, Normal developers or normal testers will find, or anyone on that team will find someone else to blame. So they'll say, as a developer, they'll say, you know, it wasn't sufficiently tested. You know, our, our tester didn't do their job. That's one way to say it. Another way to say it is we don't have, we didn't do enough testing. Um, we were not given a budget to hire enough testers. Okay. Um, and then they can say, you know, or they can say, uh, well, we basically suck. <laughs> All of those things. Or, or, or they can even blame themselves. They can say, I suck. It's not really taking responsibility because if you're taking responsibility, you would respond. Right. Instead, what you do is you feel guilty and then you just don't, you still don't do anything. It's the lazy okay. way out, right? So, uh, so when you're really taking responsibility for the collective output of the team, the developer says, hey, you know, we produce bad quality software. Uh, let me see what I can do to help avoid this problem in the future. So they might go out and advocate to hire another tester, or they might go out and say, hey, you know, let me do some of the manual testing that we have next sprint because we really can't have this happen in the future because I feel responsible for it. Or they could create an automated test, or they could do a lot of, or they could train whoever created the bug how to create fewer bugs. There's so many things they could do, but it only happens if each individual feels personally responsible for the collective output of the team. Okay. And this also leads to people training each other, right? Like, so if I'm personally responsible for the collective output of the team, we only have one database person, the database person might go on vacation, and where are we then? That's the cross-functionality so, that we need so badly. Right, absolutely. It creates, it creates pressure to create cross-functionality. And we see this in, so, you know, all these patterns are based on what we see in other methodologies. So we see this in XP. So, so programming is a form of collective responsibility. Yeah. So, um, collective code ownership is, is collective responsibility. No one can own a piece of code. Okay. 
Um, and then, uh, so this fourth pattern, it doesn't, it's not directly related to going faster yet, and, and it, but it does create resiliency in the team. And this resiliency that it creates is one that it allows the team to have changing workloads that suddenly, you know, you thought you were limiting work and process, but now look, you have this huge testing load that's a result of the type of functionality that was requested. Right. Because you have collective responsibility, the internal elements of the team can adapt to that and, and uh, start delivering software even then. Cool. So then, so that's a nice fourth pattern. And then, so that creates elasticity and resiliency. And then there's a fifth pattern that really creates expansiveness to agility, I think. Teams inherently are limited in their agility in part by people outside the team. So it could be, uh, you know, another team that's supplying a component that you need to use. Uh, and you say, hey, I need this component. And the team says, I'll get back to you in nine months. Right? Okay. That, that blows up your agility instantly. You're not able to satisfy the needs of the customer rapidly. And you have to think of something to do, right? right. So, <clears throat> so when you have these external dependencies, you have to address them. And this is, uh, so this pattern is called solve systemic problems. Okay. It's really about the team looking outside itself and thinking about the ecosystem in which it lives. And the first place that it's going to look is the thing that it, things that it depends on. So uh, it, it ought to be improving its own agility to deliver value, to deliver stuff first. And the way it does that is it looks at its dependencies and it says, hey, you said you were going to take nine months. Let me show you how you might be able to do it every month. And I'm going to teach you Scrum and I'm going to spend some time with you. You're affecting my agility so much that my team is feeling, it's almost like a collective responsibility thing. My team is feeling the sense of collective responsibility to improve our, uh, uh, to, to be agile. And so we're actually going to go down to you, a team that we depend on. We're going to try to help you be more agile in your space. Cool. And Toyota did this a long time ago. It trained its partners how to be uh, to do lean manufacturing. And that is the only way it was really able to achieve the uh, capabilities it had. So that's a fifth pattern. Um, and there's more to that pattern, but it's too But we're going to come back to each pattern. one. So, so what we're going to do right. is we're going to do additional right. podcasts, one on each topic. So, um, okay, just as an cool. overview, that's a pretty that's a pretty great overview. So, um, if people want to track you down, Dan, what's the best way for them to find you? Um, well, uh, there's uh, there's my email address. So it's dan at greening dot org. Okay. Uh, and, and then there's also my Agile blog, which is senexrex.com slash blog. So S-E-N-E-X-R-E-X dot com slash blog. Um, cool. And these patterns are part of a set of a, a writing project that I've been doing for about a year. Uh, and the, all of these patterns are very well documented. So uh, you'll see them there. 
you know, I call it a blog, but actually each blog entry is something like three or four thousand words long. So, <laughs> so I'll make sure, and I'll and I'll include links to the to the pages in the in the footer. Uh, in the show okay. notes for the for the podcast, and they can also find you on the Leading Agile website as well. Absolutely, yeah. Cool. And All right. I'm available through Leading Agile. Cool, Dan. Thanks for taking your time this morning. I really appreciate it. And we're gonna. So if you're listening, we're gonna dig deeper on each one of these topics. So um, keep checking back for the following follow up podcast on this. <laughs>